0: Hey, Jesse, Hello, Jesse and Chris,
2: this is going to be the first time we do this intro and then we're not going to have to do it again. OK, deal. Well,
1: what intro are you going to do?
2: I don't know. What are we talking about today? Guys, do we, have a theme, <laughs> do we have a
1: theme song, a, th- a season six theme song.
2: No, it's the same. You guys want a theme song for literally everything. You're like, What's oh, can, with we that? Have, can we have a theme song anytime Dennis says the word Pope Benedict? Can we is there a, like can we get a song for that?
1: Do your Pope Benedict voice.
0: I don't know what to, we think we should edit that out because <laughs> it's not very nice to hear Jesse talk in angry ways. I know. I don't even think that's that, that good, but Jesse always loves it. It yeah. is dead on. I love it oh so much. Oh, my goodness. So, Well, hey, we're going to spend the season talking about how to celebrate the Mass authentically and traditionally. But before we actually talk about the Mass, I guess there's a number of things we could say about things you need before the Mass can even start, like vestments and altars and linens and your favorite topic and mine ontology ontology of the church building okay now right. we, we have right. talked about this before. sacred space no <laughs> the well, skin
2: for liturgical action
0: No. boo <laughs> gosh you guys know how to no 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 uh, simple beauty
1: before we get you uh, uncorked for saying this uh yeah right the, what we want to say is before you know mass starts There's a lot that has to take place beforehand, right? You just don't, at bam, 10 a.m. Sunday morning, everything's gonna be excellent and beautiful and traditional and nourishing and glorifying of God and fruitful and all the rest. There's a lot that takes place before that to make that happen. And so we want to, uh, before mass starts, we want to lay some foundations. We wanna talk about the uh, church and the furnishings, the appointments. We wanna talk about the preparation of the ministers We want to talk about in another podcast, the prayer that goes, uh, that takes place before, you know, the bell rings on Sunday morning before you get there. So uh, one of the ingredients for an awesome liturgy is preparation. So we want to spend a few podcasts doing that. Mm -hmm. So anyways, Dennis, you were talking about the uh, What could
0: be left to say about church architecture? After all the many times we've talked about this, I can see Jesse's already feeling anxious about this. Yeah, Pillars.
2: Can we do a quiz? I thought we were doing a quiz. No, no quizzes. (laughs) Hey, be careful what you ask for. (laughs) Yeah, you'd give me a quiz on architecture.
0: (laughs) Now, the uh, church architecture stuff I've talked about many times, about a lot of things. But recently, Chris and I uh, decided I would write a little piece for the Adoremus Bulletin about how you can actually pull the theology out of the church's liturgical books, right? We say that about the liturgical institute a lot, that the theology of liturgy is found in the books. And I had to spend a lot of time looking at the actual book that was about church design, which is the right, or now called the Order of Dedication of a Church and Altar.
1: Yeah, I've always thought, uh, maybe I've said this before for any prospective students out there, is like the Liturgical Institute is a liturgical great books program, Mm. because it begins with uh, the text itself. Yeah. Chris's books. books So we've written, no, no, no. No, those are so secondary and tertiary and down the line, you know, that's, those are clear afterthoughts. Sort of in the line of David Fagerberg, I mean, the primary source of theology is the celebration of the liturgy. And I suppose the next closest thing you can get is the actual rites books themselves, because they are the source of the church's theology. And so that's where we start. What
0: does Dr. Fagerberg call those kinds of books? Theologia? Prima. Prima. Prima Prima donna, I think he he called it. Well, yeah, prima is just first or primary. We get that word from that, right? So the first lady would be the prima donna of the opera. But more importantly, we have the first. Well, first, why? Because that's the, church, the church's uh, book. Now, there's lots of books you can read by people who know about architecture and liturgy consultants and all of that. But hopefully, they're looking at the Theologia Prima and interpreting it properly. So I decided to look at the Order of Dedication of a Church and Altar as Theologia Prima. And I came up with a little uh, claim about it. Do you remember it, Chris? You probably don't. That a church building is a sacrament of the glorified mystical body of Christ. Yes. Okay. So. I was
2: going to say ontology. Yeah.
0: Well, I've been saying that in classes here my first semester here. Uh, Good old Abe Peralt said, oh, it's the GMBC, right? The glorified mystical body of Christ. So from then on, it's been the GMBC. But if it's not an image of the glorified mystical body of Christ, then what's a church building? Well, it's an environment. It's a factory for praying in. It's supposed to look like your house. It looks like a fish. It looks like a miter. It looks like praying hands. Everybody has a theory, but we need to stick to the ontology. What's your now, favorite Dennis,
1: word, Jesse? I, 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 I was a student of yours once upon a time. Yes. So I learned a lot. Learned. Learned. I still find that still so, weird. You learned That's about nothing? so weird. That's weird. True. You it's true. Have you learned nothing? And but I don't, so I don't know if you told me this or I'm making this up or I heard it from somewhere else. Is is you said that uh sacred art and architecture, maybe art generally, it's going to look like something, it's not going to lie. And if it doesn't it's look like a church, then it's then it, it, it's looking like something that it shouldn't.
0: And people you know, are going to tell you what it looks like. This is why people say special. my church looks like a fill yeah. in the blank.
1: And yeah. that's
2: consonancia problems right
0: there. Yes, good old proportionality from uh, Thomas Aquinas' three constituent elements of beauty. Yeah. But it's also yeah. the power of revelation, right? If, if you if you don't make a church to look like a church, it doesn't have the power to look like a church, right? It's pretty straightforward stuff.
1: Yeah, well, and, you know, if, if one of our themes of this year is, you know, how can you celebrate the current liturgy in liturgical books according to the tradition? I mean, one of those key parts is—and, you know— is going to a church that evokes what the tradition wants it to evoke, Mm -hmm. namely heaven. Yeah. And not, you know, uh, modernism or postmodernism or pizza huts or things like that. Or any other
0: pious custom or not pious custom, right? If you, if you don't know what the thing is ontologically, then you don't know what to do with it, right?
2: Yeah. There's a, there's a church in the area to be renamed, to remain unnamed and they're, you know, little, uh, altar or, or prayer area for Mary has this, I don't know, like it's a, it's a relief kind of etched type of deal. And it's like this vague figure of a woman. And that's supposed to be Mary. Like, you know, that is Mary, but it doesn't look like Mary. And we know what Mary looks like, not only from, you know, great artists, but she's also revealed herself to many people. Uh, and so we know what she looks like. And so when you, when you just, you know take that for like an earthly womanly figure then we lose all of that heavenly reality well, sure imagine
0: if you water down your grandmother's spaghetti sauce recipe to be 90 percent water and 10 percent spaghetti sauce you would say that's weak sauce right well we don't want weak sauce when it comes to uh <laughs> boy you set that up real nice uh, i like that i didn't even that's plan awesome. i didn't even plan that it's just my, my genius on display um but why do we make weak buildings? Why do we make weak uh, celebration of the liturgy? You know, just watering it down.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think um, I don't. Know, I think we're of the same mind here. Is that you know the building isn't some neutral setting, but is a constituent part of yes. the celebration of the liturgy. And when it's when it's not seen in that way, then it just be people will treat it as some neutral thing that doesn't have any bearing on the ritual itself. But uh, it certainly does. It's a it's a key key component.
0: Yeah, so the, the book for dedicating church is something the bishop uses when a new church is uh, dedicated. And it's got a lot of different chapters, you know, for the blessing the ground, laying the cornerstone, the church building itself, the altar, and other things. But there's um, introductory information in most of the church's books that explain the nature of these things, right? So the... the uh, you're gonna say something there, Chris? I was just uh,
1: another thing. This is a feature of the post-conciliar books. Again, this this season isn't about comparing and contrasting pre-conciliar and post-conciliar, but uh, this is one of the things that you'll find in the in the current books is is they have these little mini theological introductions either at the beginning of the book or at the beginning of the chapter, and not just you know tables of rubrics, but the real uh, theological meat of uh, uh, of the matter is right there. So this is a great thing.
0: That's true. So, what does it say right there in the um, beginning, like the opening decree of of the book itself? It says, a church building is a special image of the church, that's capital C, which is God's temple built of living stones. Okay, flat out. Well, what's the church? The church is the mystical body of Christ. It's the continuing action of Christ in the world. It's made of many members. They're hierarchically and properly arranged and eventually brought to glory. So, think about the many parts of a church. Bricks, stones, beams, tiles, roof shingles, and think of those as a part of a body, fingers, toes, liver, <laughs> all the stuff you need. And imagine the many parts of your body have to be arranged in the right order. You can't walk around on your head, can't think with your feet. The different parts of the church have to be governed by, you know, bishop, pastor, you know, families. And so the building is supposed to signify the church as this continuing action of Christ in the world, this many members of the living uh, it's the mystical body and so what
2: about the people that say that's like that's too finicky you're being like too you know like too rigid on all of this stuff you know it doesn't matter as much as you think it does it's you
0: know well you know there are always uh, anti-intellectual people out there who refuse to do the work it takes to understand something on the other hand things have natures right if you say well i'm going to go buy a dog and someone tries to sell you an elephant you're probably going to say hey I, well, why are you so rigid? You know, an elephant and a dog are the same things. Like, no, they're not. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they have this a, a nature. And so the church informs us the nature, and it comes from scripture. It's constantly quoting scripture, the order of dedication of a church. Even the prayers that are celebrated in the rite itself come out of uh, readings about the Temple of Solomon, things from the Book of Revelation, uh, the Tabernacle of Moses. And so, when you actually read the book, it says things like the faithful should be reminded that the structure will be a visible sign of the living church, God's building, which they themselves constitute. Okay. Yeah, Chris.
1: Yeah. Um, on this point, if we go back to your article, and if anybody wants to read this, which you should, this is in the July issue of Adoramus. Uh, But you say in the first paragraph towards the end that uh, in recent years, the revival of traditional architecture has brought more traditional looking churches Often, rightly supported by an appeal to antiquity, um, but still that may—what do you say at the end? Uh, but are still uh, may overlook the biblical and sacramental nature of mm-hmm. church buildings. And so, I think you know, just to to you know, uh, press this point that you're making. You're talking about ontology, natures, essences that's the starting point uh, that the sacramental expression comes from. So something that just might look pretty or old or something like that, that's not the litmus in the mind of the church as to what makes a beautiful church. It has to begin somewhere else.
0: Right. So um, Hansard Balthazar talked about the romantic movements in architecture where they have emotional attachments to older things. And he says, hey, that's fine as far as it goes, because the theology comes with it. You know, if you photocopy Thomas Aquinas and then read it, you're going to have the theology of Thomas Aquinas, but it's not going to invent new theology, right? So bringing things from the past forward is is good as far as it goes. But boy, isn't it even better to understand the principles that the old things embodied and then live freely with them, living in that um, free system to invent without losing uh, the content. And so the current revival of church architecture, which is traditional, is great, and I'm glad it's happening. And there's a lot of good intuition and instincts that parish building committees have. Um, but it's very rare that you'll see someone say, oh, I built it this way because of scripture, because of the Garden of Eden, because of the, the Book of Revelation, because of the Temple of Solomon, because of the reference to columns in the, in the scriptures. So that's been my thing for a long time now, is to sort of root church design not in uh, emotional antiquarianism or nostalgia, but to say, let's find the deeper roots of where that nostalgia is coming from and, and breathe some life into it. That's a
2: good example of that is the, the apps at the Josephinum, the one that they just redid uh, St. Tiberius. Is that the name of the chapel there? Uh,
0: yeah, it's something yeah. like that, but or it's not Terebius. Terebius, it's
2: it's Terebius. 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 Yeah. And you know, the originally they had all of the minor orders painted in there. Well, you know, the minor orders don't exist anymore, so instead they replaced them with significant saints, but they used different images referencing the minor orders in the apps and in the design of it as well as a call to the, you know, original uh, design, and so I thought that was kind of cool that they incorporated that, not just for design's sake, or, you know, but it meant something. It meant something for that particular chapel.
0: Right. So you have a favorite hymn with wonderful verses and you want to add a verse in the middle that... Has something to do with some insight John Paul had or something. It doesn't mean you have to copy the song exactly as it was. You can use the tradition and add a new verse and, you know, invent some kind of melodic line that goes along with it. And this is what a growing and expanding, you know, development of doctrine uh, does. But when you do that, you have to either roll with the culture in, in an ignorant way or say, what is this thing we're actually doing? So, here's this book that tells us everything that the church is a sign of the mystical body of Christ symbolizes the living stones who are the people of this church. Um, and sometimes you hear people out there say, well, we're the people, the church is the people. So the church building doesn't count for anything, right? It's the just the thing that keeps the rain off our head, but documents of the church, at least the Catholic church say very uh, often that is not the case that the church building is so much like the, Church as the mystical body of Christ that they have the same name and they're allowed to have the same name, and uh, it has the names like the house of God in which is dwells His family, the household of God, sorry, the household of God in the Spirit, the dwelling place of God among men, and the temple, and uh, this is high theological stuff, right? When you look at the prayers, you know when they um, people gather to. Uh, have the cornerstone or to bless the land. They ask that people grow into the temple of God's glory. Now, who's the temple, right? Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body, body. body, right? So you see that equation of the, the building and the mystical body even uh, you know back that far uh, along. And there's lots of stone references, right? You're the living stones in God's building. I want to be nothing more than a pillar in the, in the temple of God. Uh, Peter, you know, the book Letter of Peter talks about Christians being like living stones built into a spiritual house. So whenever you hear stones, think people, and people are members of the mystical body. The mystical body is the church and the church building signifies that. And so it's right there, very, very unambiguously. In chapter 2 of the Order of Dedication of Church, it says it's called The Nature and Dignity of Churches. When I hear nature, when you hear the word nature, what should come to mind? Jesse and Chris, my favorite word.
1: You can have this one, Jesse. Uh,
0: Eschatology? Well, that's not bad, but the nature is (laughs) ontology, right? You know that. The study of the being of something, the study of the nature of something. I was going
2: to say Jesus. Uh, That's always a good answer, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) But let's see um, what it says here. It says, rightly, therefore, from ancient times, the name church has been given to the building in which the Christian community is gathered and to celebrate the Eucharist and so on. So the Catholic Church tells us the church building is the name. And that's something that struck me many times over the years is that um, Muslims don't say we are mosque, right? I think I brought this up some episode. Jews don't say we are synagogue. Christians say we are church. And our building and the name of our kind of community organization is is the same because it's so close one uh, to the other.
1: You know, uh, I think this has come up before too, but you know how you go from being kind of a dead stone to a living stone in the church as you get uh, baptized with water and anointed with sacred chrism, and then you receive uh, the Eucharist. And Um, You know, in in this book that you're talking about, the order for the dedication of a church and altar, both an altar and a church get washed with holy water, and then they get anointed with sacred chrism. So a church building gets anointed on the walls, and then it receives a little candle, and then uh, it is celebrated for the very first time, the Eucharist. And so the the parallels are really great between uh, us. It, it would make sense then that we would call each other the church and the church building an image of us, both sort of initiated uh, along the same ways. And it's, uh, I don't know, the theology is very remarkable.
2: St. John Chrysostom talks about the altar receiving Christ for the first time. It's like just, you know, the way he talks about it, it's just amazing. It's beautiful.
0: Right. And, you know, stones on earth are great and we carve them out of the ground and we shape them and put them in a wall. Now the biblical image, of course, of gems, gems are stones, but s- gems are stones that are brought to a kind of glory into a heavenly uh, glory. And so you think about yourself or the great image of iron plus fire. Iron is sort of dull and dark, but you add fire to it in the in the uh, blacksmith shop and it starts to glow with this light. So when you think about that, the continuing theology of the of the rite of dedication of church or the order of dedication of a church, is that it is a special sign of the pilgrim church on earth. Okay, good enough, we got that down. But also of the church dwelling in heaven. That's the dedication of the cornerstone, uh, paragraph two. So, if the mystical body of Christ is not merely the people on earth, but is actually the saints and the angels, and to whatever degree the persons of the Trinity are involved in that, then you would say wow, our church on earth should show the real, true, full reality of what the mystical body is, which is church on earth, church in heaven. What does the church in heaven look like? Well, it's perfect, it's ordered, it's radiant, it's transformed, it's gem-like, it's radiant with the light of Christ. And so when churches don't do that, they're actually denying us this full active participation in the realities that the liturgy is supposed to show us.
1: Yeah. I I like that point because, you know, you you think about the church, right? You're just going to look, you're going to type in church into your uh, uh, Google browser or something. You're going to read about dysfunction and scandal and, you know, all of the warts that uh, the mystical body (laughs) is showing to the world. Uh, And so, and if the church building is supposed to look like the church, well, then shouldn't a church building look, you know, kind of, wayward and fallen and wounded and things like that. But I think this point uh, speaks, you know, uh, speaks to that very question. Right?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the things that um, the uh, some of the liturgical prayers for the dedication of a church compare Christ to the cornerstone, but it also speaks of God as gathering his children from Israel, the tribes of Israel. So I thought there was a great image of gathering the stones or the bricks or the building materials across the building site. Everything's kind of in chaos, but you have to gather them first, get them all in the right place. Then you cut and shape them and arrange them. And sometimes that gathering process is a little messy, you know, a stone cracks or it's got a little, needs a little filing. So we shouldn't be surprised if the mystical body is not perfected yet, but the church building is supposed to give us an architectural image of what that perfection might be looking like as these living stones of us are being built up into a spiritual house. There's that language, too, about um, these these um, stones, these living stones should be hewn and dressed by God's hand. I love that. God's the stonemason who's chipping off the rough edges and carving everything to fit and exactly... And the Savior uh, Mason's hammer. The Savior Mason's hammer is the same thing. That's from... And we,
2: and we talked about, too... Uh, on a previous podcast about the liturgical telos of a tree is to be turned into a crucifix
0: or, you know. Yeah, or and an so, angel or a beam for the roof of a church. Right. Yeah.
2: And so while creation itself is still fallen, we we can see it perfected, you know, in in the heavenly glory.
1: You know that uh, it's, it's in that chapter in the Spirit of the Liturgy by Ratzinger, Dennis, where he talks about that, where that in-between time between already and not yet. Mm-hmm. And he's talking, we're not in a completely... Uh, unredeemed world. And we're obviously not in heaven. And he says, the temple is still under construction, which I think is a great line. And that, you know, we're still being fitted together by the master Mason's hand, who is God. And so, uh, yeah, we're we're working. The the direction of a church building is towards heavenly glory. And if it's not showing that, then it's taking us on a you know, on a dead end.
0: Right. And you do hear people say, well, God's everywhere and everything's in the world and the whole world is the temple. And, you know, the introductory material to the the right, the dedication of Cornerstone in particular, acknowledges that, right? It says, God has made the whole world a temple that he might be extolled everywhere. So it's great to walk in the woods and admire waterfalls and everything. But then it says, um, you allow us to consecrate to you apt places for the divine mysteries. In fact, God gives us permission to make buildings you allow us to consecrate these things that are particularly fitting for the divine mysteries now is a nice field and a mountain view fitting sure it's good enough but you want to get the heavenly glory the anticipation of the mystical body the heavenly Jerusalem and all of that then you have to make something that's not just the the goodness of the fallen world but the extraordinary um, sacramental realization of the heavenly realm. And that's what it says in the next thing, that here is foreshadowed the heavenly Jerusalem, which is heaven, described in the book of Revelation. And um, that's all full of ideas of it being made of gems and the walls are gold and it's filled with light and the new garden is inside. And so when you start to think, oh yeah, church buildings an image of heaven, why? Because heaven is conformed to God. Well, what's the perfect union of creation and God? Christ was it made of many members. What are they brought to glory? Who's their head? Who are we? The church. All of those same things. Then we add the order and the perfection, the radiance, the color, and the gold and uh, light of heaven. And so I think that's the lesson we have here, right? The architecture world will try to tell us things. The building committee will try to save money. The architect you have might not be trained in church architecture. But if we can operate out of this ontological reality, then words like, oh, the meeting house of God, nope sorry it would just fall away meeting house is not the glorified mystical body it's not a neutral backdrop it's not a living room it's part of the right itself as you said chris constituent to the um the celebration of the liturgy and you think what going into a beautiful church does for you even before mass starts it's hushed it's beautiful you're looking around you're seeing dark corners and stained glass and beautiful things to see you're like already changes your disposition and therefore contributes to the reception of grace and our own glorification. And that's, that's its role.
1: Now, Dennis, this is, uh, this is really all good highfalutin theology and whatnot, but can you just, um, (laughs) just like paint a mental picture for me and for the listeners about, uh, I mean, translate it into visible, tangible, Things. I mean, so if I go into a church that's built along these lines, uh, out of theological, liturgical, ontological sources, what will I see um, when I go in?
0: Well, according to your budget and the capacity of your parish, you will see a building that is obviously important with a high level of craft. It'll have a tall ceiling. There are some architects who who try to insist that it should be at least as twice as tall as as it is wide in order to give you that sense of verticality. It will be processional and you know, it'll have an aisle. It'll be altar dominant, which is very important. And then the altar itself will be so fabulous. So enriched, made of such fine material, such high level of craft, inset mosaic, sparkling gold, that it does what an altar is, which is the image of Christ standing amidst his people. And then it might be extended out through a mural on the wall or some statues to show the heavenly beings who are members of that uh, body. And then it provides ample place, of course, for the earthly members of that body. And every corner should have something that's worth investigating. This is something architect James McCurry taught me many years ago. He said, good architecture and art to always reward you for close inspection. Hmm. The closer you get, the more you should see. The more layered, the more detail. Hmm. And if it doesn't, then you've done okay. But if it does, then you've really thought it out. Even the tiles on the floor, are they the streets of the heavenly Jerusalem? Are they just the cheapest carpet you can buy that the vacuum cleaner will not have uh, resistance to? Uh, Would the the walls painted beige like a builder house in a development in your neighborhood? Or have you made a special way to pick paint colors, textures, materials? Even something as simple as putting a little marble slab that costs $10 on the windowsill will completely change your experience of a church rather than just paint a drywall which will crack uh, when plants are put there and the water spills out of them. Um, that's it. How do you make it glorified, heavenly, colorful, and an image of the mystical body of Christ? And there's an infinite number of ways to do that. But if you don't start with the ontology, then you're getting off on a bad track uh, to begin with.
1: Well, see, I think this is great. I, I mean... Again, if you want to respond to traditionis Custodes and you want to uh, answer the Holy Father's call, then one of the ways that you're going to do it is to help uh, create a church. And I'm not going to say environment, but a uh, a place that uh, that is guided by the uh, the books, in this case, the Order for the Dedication of a Church and Altar. I mean, so that what you're describing here, you know, isn't a, what, in this letter he uses the word uh, eccentricities. This is not Dennis's idiosyncratic uh, uh, tastes or Although God knows I have a lot of them. <laughs> yes, you do. That's another podcast or two. Uh, I mean, this is what the books say. This is what the books prescribe to be, to be built. And so I think uh, part of the, you know, part of the uh, setup for one of these uh, kind of the perfect mass and every mass is perfect because Jesus is perfect but you know for us to do our part is going to be providing a place to the faithful uh, that is awesome yeah
0: and this is the minimum right starting with this theological understanding is the minimum and then it should be even brought to higher and better revelation and this is why churches from the past, even though they often don't look like each other, all seem to look like churches, whether they're Gothic or Baroque or Romanesque or early Christian, because they're all working out of this ontological understanding. It's when we forget the nature of the church that the eccentricities uh, happen. And so we can have the greatest possible variety as long as we stay with the idea of what a church is. And that is not a limitation on our freedom, but is actually the precondition for freedom.
2: I'm still still processing how I'd feel if I was trying to buy a dog, and somebody gave me an elephant. I'm still on that. Line. <laughs> still bad thing.
0: All <laughs> yeah, right, but if you wanted an, a dog, you could have an infinite number of dogs. You could have a German Shepherd or a Poodle or a Beagle, and then you you could buy hundred different Beagles that are each different from each other, but they they're in the right category. Same thing with churches. Great freedom as long as you stay close to the truth.
1: I'd, I'd like to add one more thing, too. You know, it, when, it, when we discuss things liturgical, very often we're talking about the right. And how it's celebrated, executed, and things like that. Um, but right, we, we should talk about us too, right? Because you can have, you can have a, a magnificent church building that bears inspection in every corner, but if you know, if you're not into that sort of thing, and you're kind of flaking out and not paying attention, and you know, wondering when, you know, how you're, how the Cubs are doing. How are the Cubs doing this year, Jesse? Uh, let's not talk about it. Okay. Please. Okay. Anyway. Um, so, I mean, we have to do our part. You know, the liturgy, whether it's a pre-conciliar or post-conciliar, requires a formation and intelligence and paying attention and things like that. So I guess I would say, um, I remember we had this assignment by Dr. Fagerberg uh, when I was there, is is to go to some liturgy and just notice things. And it was amazing the things that you can find when you actually start paying attention. So I would, uh, you know, maybe your church out there doesn't bear inspection but see if that's the case the next time you go to your church notice the steps the doors the ornament around the doors the doorknobs what takes how it smells how it what takes place in the in the narthex everything notice as much as you can about the art and the architecture the next time you go to mass and see if you can't see what the what you know if the church has been built according to these models according to this line what God is trying to convey to us through just the art and architecture, and uh, you might be surprised. You might be disappointed too, <laughs> but you might be surprised about that. Well, I never knew depends that. Depends on your depends on your church, Chris. <laughs> no, it's, it certainly does. But again, you can have the greatest church or the worst church, and if you're not bringing anything to the game, then it's a moot point. So see see if you can't start to see something, notice something that you haven't before the next time you go.
2: mm Hmm. All right, we have a, uh, got a literature question this week, guys. Another
1: Dubia? You're supposed to call them Dubia.
2: Okay, we have a Dubia? <laughs> doobie doobie. Dubie, can, can we
1: get a theme song? Oh my God, God please, <laughs> if just
2: you a, ask for a
1: If you ask for one more theme song, Jesse, you're fired. you said in the last podcast that you have a dozen and a half new ideas every single day. I mean, you were you were just, you're so feckin'. Yeah,
2: that doesn't mean I can do them. Oh. I just I just, they exist. Hey, Jesse, do we have a literature
0: question? We do. Yeah.
2: We do. Be a
0: <laughs> mail call. Mail call. Oh Moses, Moses! Why do you question me? Why do you care? Today we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is? Class? Anyone?
2: This question is from Agnes,
0: who used not... to be named Kunagunda.
2: Yeah. This is a. It's our. We're changing Kunigunda to Agnes this okay. year. It's not not Chris's Agnes. It's not my Agnes. It's Agnes. You know. And Agnes says, let me see here, Agnes says, I recently attended mass where the priest did not invite the congregation to do the kiss of peace, yet the congregation still did the kiss of peace. Is this allowed? Why or why not?
0: Mm. Okay, well, let's clarify a few things from Agnes's question, right? Now, the priest doesn't, is not required to um, invite people to make the sign of peace, um, but a lot of people are not doing it still because of COVID, so even though churches are open, they're not saying offer a uh, sign of peace, and so the people often uh, do it anyway. I have noticed this here on campus and some other places, because people are so used to sitting next to their husband, wife, their friend, and they want to shake a hand at that moment, but they have not been invited to by the priest. I have an idea, Chris, but since you are more genius than I, hmm. what do you think?
1: I think the answer is they shouldn't do it. I agree with you. If I had a bell, I would ring it. Yeah. Ding. Um, so let's start with the uh, the, the text. The order of mass uh, says um, after what? After the priest says, uh, the peace of the Lord be with you always and with your spirit. And then it says, then if appropriate, the deacon or the priest adds, let us offer each other the sign of peace, and all offer one another a sign, in keeping with local customs, etc. I think if there's no invitation to exchange the sign of peace, then there, there shouldn't be a response to be exchanging uh, the a sign of peace. So, I mean, the I think it's clear by the rubrics. The I don't know. Is it? But is it just because that's what the law says? Can you? Scratch the surface and find some theology. Yes.
0: Surface scratching is one of my favorite things to do. And here's what I think. Oh, my gosh. What? If you get the idea that the mystical body is a head and members, then the head guides the members, and the members are guided by the head. So just as the people in the pews would never instruct the priest in what to do, they don't (laughs) do what they're not instructed to do (laughs) by the priest. So... If you have not been invited to make the sign of peace, I would suggest you don't make the sign of peace, at least not in an obvious way. I mean, maybe you can squeeze your wife's hand a little harder or something, and she knows you love her. But generally speaking, liturgical actions don't happen in the pews when it's not uh, instructed by by the head.
1: Hey, here's some other. My legalistic mind is uh, reminded of general instruction of the Roman Missal Number 42 on uh, gestures. Okay, so this would be a gesture, wouldn't it? Exchanging the sign. It would, of yeah. Yeah. Attention must be paid to what is determined by this germ and by the traditional practice of the Roman Rite and to what serves the common good of the people of God rather than private inclination or arbitrary choice. A common bodily posture observed by all those present is a sign of unity of the members of the Christian community gathered for the liturgy. Where it expresses the intentions and spiritual attitude of the participants and also fosters them. So I think if you were going to make your decision based on arbitrary choice and not what is given in the, uh, in the celebration of the rite, then that wouldn't be according to the uh, mens ecclesiae. So don't in, in do similar,
2: it. In a similar vein, if the priest is doing the preparation of the gifts on the altar, sometimes that is spoken aloud. Uh, even though it says that it's not always spoken aloud, even if there's no antiphon or whatever. So sometimes the priest will recite it aloud and we say, blessed be God forever. You're not going to be sitting there if he's doing it quietly, like watching his words to see if you could say, oh, blessed be God forever. So you wouldn't do that because it's not spoken to you, so there's no response there. But my other question of clarification is, Chris, you always, this goes to your most recent point, you talk about, you know, there are times in the mass where there's personal acts of piety or signs of piety or, you know, whatever. Uh, like if you make the sign of the cross after reception of communion or different things. So there's, there's a time and a place for stuff like that, where we, we don't have to be 100% in union because, you know, we are, we have our individual, you know, way that we do things, but this would not pertain to that, right? This would not qualify.
1: No, I think it's a public action of the uh, assembled uh, body, so, no. But I think should. it also tells us
0: how important proper liturgical um, actions are, because they get so ingrained in us that even when we're not told to make the sign of peace, everybody feels like, oh, we have to do this. So, mm-hmm. learning this the right way, every liturgical action, gesture, posture the right way, becomes uh, habitual to us. And so, I'm not trying to beat up the people who are doing this. They mean well, and they love their neighbor and all, but it's an interesting, uh, interesting answer.
2: All right, Agnes, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Uh, presumably, Dennis is on Parlor still, but mm-hmm. I doubt
0: that you check it. DMACC super SuperTaster at Parlor, which I uh, don't ever sign into because I forgot my password.
2: And uh, <laughs> if you want to ask Chris a question, you might as well just contact Dennis and say, Could you ask Chris for me? Yeah, so, through Parlor. Yeah, through Parlor. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by Adoremus, the Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture and Ex Corde, both at Benedictine College. Ah. Now that's a podcast.